Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. We're continuing in the life of Moses, born in Egypt. There, his people, the nation of Israel, in slavery to uh, the nation of Egypt. He understood the calling of the Lord on his life to be a deliverer, but he didn't have the relationship with the Lord that was necessary at that time. And so at 40 years old, to try and start an insurrection, apparently, he attacked a uh, basically a an Egyptian soldier, a taskmaster, uh, who was ruling over the slaves of Israel, and uh, he killed him. And he hid his body in the sand, and then he presented himself to the Israeli people, uh, two men that were in a conflict the next day, and they essentially said, uh, who made you our ruler? We don't want anything to do with you. And uh, you know, are you going to kill us like you did the Egyptian yesterday? And he suddenly realized everyone knew that he had murdered an Egyptian, and out of terror he fled, and he comes to this place in Midian where he ends up meeting Jethro and marries Zipporah, his daughter, and has made this his home. And now 40 years have passed as he's lived in that place. It says, now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And I want to concentrate on that again in that uh, Jethro in all likelihood is a descendant of Midian who was a grandson to Abraham. And so this is the family of Abraham, and when it says that he is a priest, it is the idea that he is worshiping the God of the Bible, and that he's leading the people in worship of the God of the Bible. So he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There in verse 2, it says, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. Now, he doesn't recognize the angel Yet, that's a summary of what we're about to read. And that happens often, and I'll point it out here, because, for instance, in the creation account, there are those that want to say there are two different creations that took place, or maybe more, depending on who you talk to. The Jews very often will give you the large overview first, and then the more detailed understanding of that same topic. Here, you get that. Here, the, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flame you know, from the midst of the bush. He doesn't see the angel immediately. That comes to light. So he looked, and that's the idea of studying intently. And behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Very peculiar, obviously. Um, the fire in the wilderness is not that you know, abnormal. Uh, lightning strike, somebody's campfire, stray spark could easily cause you know something to burn, area to catch fire. You know, the whole place is a tinderbox of desert-like conditions, very dry. You know, anyone that's you know lived in California knows what that's like. You know, somebody has bad breaks and sparks fly off their car and now the whole wilderness is on fire. Or, you know, somebody tosses a cigarette out the window and half of the state burns. You know, so for him to see a bush burning is not abnormal. It's the fact that he's seen the fire and it's not going out. It's continuing to burn. So he's 
curious about what's going on. Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So there's there's something about it that uh, almost seems supernatural <coughs> to him. So in verse 4, so when the Lord saw that he turned aside, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Now, a few things about this. The first of which is, it says the Lord saw he turned aside to look. The idea is God is waiting to see if Moses is going to react to this supernatural event that he's created. God gives us free will. If we choose not to pursue the things of the Lord, then he's content to leave that alone. Now, he will make himself known. He will present himself. If we don't pursue that, that's our problem. That's our fault. You know, I've mocked it many times, that idea of people say, oh, I'm a seeker. You know, they, they're implying that they're just looking into all things. What I've discovered about the people that say that most of the time is what they really mean is I'm a wanderer. I'm not going to put my roots down anywhere. I'm just going to continue to browse. I have no intent uh, uh, on finding anything. Jesus Christ said, if you seek, you will find. Right? If you, if you keep on seeking, you will find. You know, uh, that passage in Chronicles that says the eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the whole earth, seeking whose heart is loyal toward him, that he might strongly support them. God is looking for response. God is looking for that positive reaction. Moses provides that. He sees this occurrence, and he's intent to find out what it is that's going on. So he's turned aside. And then also, this statement, you know, Moses. Uh, I was uh, in a parking lot uh, yesterday and uh, saw Doug King and said, hey, Doug King. And he turned around 180 degrees away from me, looked the opposite direction, you know, looking for me. The voice traveling. So the idea that <coughs> Moses hears his name being called and he just responds, here I am, is not all that peculiar. You know, you hear your name called, you're going to respond. Now, there's, you know, something sort of supernatural about this occasion, but sort of natural also is a reaction to his name being called. Now, throughout the scripture, that double call, Moses, Moses, Mary, Mary, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I think it's interesting throughout the scripture that when God is trying to get someone's attention, that there's a very strong insistence on his part. It isn't just that he's calling. He's insistently calling. I think if we search our hearts, we each know what it's like. We hear the call of the Lord. We perhaps ignore. We don't respond initially. And then the second call comes. I don't often share all of the details of 
how I came to the Lord. Sometimes people will say things like, uh, oh, I don't have much of a testimony. I have a friend who was attending the University of Maine. Everybody remember the Navigators, those Bible studies? He uh, received an invitation to go to a Navigators Bible study. He read a tract there about the need for salvation that just clearly laid out, you know, Romans Road, uh, the fact that he was a sinner and needed Christ. And, uh, you know, as a squeaky clean, uh, square cut kind of guy, invited to a navigator's meeting, <clears throat> read a tract, surrendered his life to Christ. Got saved. Like no muss, no fuss. Just, you know, others of us like dove head first through the sinful meat grinder and got spit out the other end. And everybody goes, wow, what a testimony. I think it's really smart <clears throat> to get invited to a navigator's meeting, read a track and say, hey, that's what I need. You know, that's quite a testimony to me. You I mean, you didn't have to ruin your life with sin. You didn't have to ruin everyone else else's life in your environment. You didn't make everyone hate you. You didn't, you know, you have no criminal record. Wow. You know, it's amazing. Genius. Smart. You know, my, my occasion, uh, I was doing a lot of drugs and selling a lot of drugs. And I was with a friend and we were on a whole bunch of drugs. In the midst of it, he said, hey, have you ever read the Bible? And I thought, what a weird question. Yeah, yeah, I've read the Bible. He said, uh, you, ever, you ever read the book of Revelation? And I said, you know, I hadn't told everybody I was raised in Christianity. I said, yeah, yeah, I've read the book of Revelation. You ever do it while you're on a bunch of drugs? And I said, absolutely not. Oh, you got to try it. He leaves your room, comes back with the Bible. Just starts reading. I mean, in like seconds, my brain has melted out of my ear and just I'm gone. I can't even believe what I'm hearing. And in that moment, some of you have heard this. I remember, I don't know what year it was, but the New England Patriots were in the playoffs for the Super Bowl. And they're on the television like right then. And I turned to him and say, hey, we're missing the Patriots game right now. And he says, well, do you think that we should keep reading the Bible or should we watch the Patriots game? And I can't explain to this day why that sounded so evil. Now, some of you were thinking, well, because it was the Patriots, but I just, there was something about, do you re continue reading the Bible or stop reading the Bible to watch football that just seemed wrong? <clears throat> and I said, okay, probably just because I was on a bunch of drugs. I said, okay. Finish reading the book of Revelation, and then let's quickly get to watching the game. He's like, all right. He starts to read, and the television in the other room turns itself on to the football game. And I came like that high right off the floor. And then said, okay, wait a second. Are you messing with me? And now I realize he's looking at me saying, are you messing with me? And I go in the other room, and both of the remotes are laying on top of the television. And I was just like, Goodbye, I'm not staying here. This house is haunted. You know, And I just left. I went to another friend's and partied for the rest of the night. Just like God was saying, will, and I ignored him. And seven days later, he just kicked the door down. 
in the midst of another drug-induced occasion. I called out to God, and he answered me very clearly. Will, will. Saul, Saul. Moses, Moses. Maybe he's calling your name right now, saying something to your heart. Maybe you've heard it and heard it, and right now you're hearing it differently. My encouragement is don't be that person who all along the way you know the call of the Lord on your life and you just keep moving and moving and moving away from it. Move toward the call. Move toward the burning bush. Move toward the thing that God is demonstrating to you. The response, here I am. You'll realize it's not the preacher calling you. It's not your crazy Christian friend or relative who's always trying to talk to you about Jesus. You'll realize it's God himself, right? You know, Doug King thinks somebody's calling to him over here. It's me right in front of him. You think it's the preacher talking to you right now. It's not. It's God. God is calling our name, wanting us to response. Look at verse 5. Then he said, Do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Now, this is one of those odd cultural things that's often questioned. You know, what's the deal with taking off the shoes? What is the deal with holy ground? Well, there are a lot of cultures. America doesn't so much do it, especially, you know, New England and Maine doesn't do it. You know, because uh, when we enter a home, it's not customary to unlace your, you know, logging boots and take off your footwear. In a lot of homes, it's customary, and in a lot of cultures around the world, it's customary when you enter someone's house to take your shoes off. The idea is, this is God's dwelling place. And you need to show the humility when you enter my place in that In this culture, Moses came from the Egyptian culture where they wore very ornate shoes and sandals as the leadership, but all of the slavery was barefoot. The idea is, I'm royalty, this is my household, and you are about to become my servant. So just take your shoes off. You're entering my dwelling place. I think it's important, probably we don't have enough ventilation, we should all leave our shoes on. But, the humility of heart, entering the presence of the Lord at home or here, to begin by humbling ourselves, you know, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Not my name. My name is not hallowed. In comparison to his unspeakable, literally, unspeakable holy name, my name is trash in comparison to him. What do the prophets say? All of our righteousness is like filthy rags. We need to take off our sandals when we enter the presence of the Lord. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, 
for he was afraid to look upon God. We've, you know, heard that whole thing of, oh, when I see God, I've got a thing or two I'm going to say to him. No, you don't. No. You're going to be overwhelmed. And probably if you've got that attitude right now, you're going to be more overwhelmed than you could possibly imagine. The ones in this room who are already hiding their face from the Lord, who already have that heartfelt sense of humility, the Lord is going to lift their head up. He's going to raise them up. The ones who have the pride-filled heart are going to be humbled. The angels themselves, right? Six wings, right? They cover their humanity, their feet. They fly with two of them, and they cover their face with two of them in the presence of the Lord. The holiest of beings ever created other than God, who was not created, don't even dare look upon him. Hide his face is a natural reaction. Verse 7, the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. God sees. We very often feel like, think like, act like he doesn't. But he does. God sees and understands. You know, very often what's going on is God's allowing us, and I know this experientially, I know it biblically, and I know experientially. He's allowing us to go through the difficulty that we're in so that we'll realize ourselves. He already knows who we are, but we deceive ourselves into thinking that we're something other than what we are, that we're in a place spiritually that we're not. He puts us under the pressure in order that we can know. The people of Israel, they're in a place where their slavery is teaching them their need for God. That's what they're learning. How desperately they need God. He knows what they're going through. He makes that statement, for I know their sorrow, more than they can imagine, right? Because this is Jesus, he is speaking to them, and he's going to take upon himself all of their pain and suffering at the cross. He's already perfectly aware of everything that it's going to cost. The pain is a perfect knowledge in his mind. Verse 8, so I have come down to deliver them. Now, important to remember that. As you move forward in the account, it's not Moses who is their deliverer. He'll be referred to as their deliverer, but in the end, it's God. If anywhere along the way, Moses had croaked, God would have delivered them, right? In fact, it occurs, right? He doesn't even get to take them into the promised land. It's Joshua who takes them into the promised land. God is their deliverer. Uh, be careful about your own heart because we do that, right? You know, we, we get thinking that somehow it's me, I'm working and I'm earning these wages and I'm paying my bills and it's me, mine, I. And then God says, all right, enough of that and just strips it all away. But then continues to take care of us, to show us, no, 
it was me and it's still me. I'm the one who's delivering you. I'm the one who's taking care of you. So consider this very important factor that it's God who's going to take care of them. Out of the hand of the Egyptians, I'll deliver you. And bring them up from the land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey. The idea is richness and sweetness and great blessing. To the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. Now, therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me. I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. I'm going to send you. Right? I, I love the fact that in the book of John, when you're reading through that gospel, you can do a word study and see how many times the word sent or send or sending is used, all in reference to Jesus. I was sent. I, 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 God was sending me. I, I am the sent one. I was obedient to him. I came. I, I was the one who went out from him. John makes those references endlessly, endlessly. If, if we are obedient to the Lord, that's going to be the first level of realization for us is we're being sent. So very often, <clears throat> we're looking at some other occasion, like I want to go over there. You know, I'm here now, but I've got a longing look at that occasion or that opportunity or that mission or work over there. I, I want to go over there. And the realization that God sent us to where we are right to where you are. I mean, who else is going to bring the gospel into your workplace, right? I mean, you make the arrangements, I'll go preach to them, right? I'll do it. But we often get the mentality like, you know, what these guys need to hear is that message I heard at church last week. They're never going to church. I mean, most of those ones that you're around, they they can't they can't hardly stop swearing while they have a conversation with you. You know what I'm saying? They're never going to darken the doorstep of the local church. Ah, but God has put you undercover inside that environment where they are. Open your mouth. Speak for Him. Allow Him to send you in that place. I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Look at Moses in verse 11, as he said to God, Who am I? <clears throat> what a wonderful frame of mind. Who am I? What good am I? It's, it's always when somebody gets to the place where, like, of course God would send me. After all, I'm gifted and good-looking. And people like me, gosh darn it. You know, I just, and that's when no one's going to listen to you. Because that's your mentality of yourself. Maybe you are gifted. Maybe you are attractive to the world. Maybe you have all of those wonderful qualities and they're useless to the Lord. 
He needs a man like Moses, who has this humility of heart, and then follow some of the things he says a little later. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, and then I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So, great frame of mind. Second Peter is our memory verse this week, chapter 1, verse 10. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. Make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. Are, are you sure of your call and your election? I've met and know most of you, and I'm already confident of it. The calling and the election of the Lord in your life. What it is that the Lord has called you to do. You know, I've spoken to people that have the frame of mind that, like, I'm useless to the Lord. No one listens to me. I can't share the gospel anywhere that I go. There are probably members of your family that no one will ever get to other than you. God is that specific, right? God is patient, not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance, the knowledge of the Lord. He wants everyone to be saved. So he's fashioned all kinds of instruments and tools and people to go to those places to reach them. Your election is sure. Your calling is sure. Be faithful in that little thing and maybe he'll open other doors for you. But where you are, preach the word of God. Open your mouth and say what needs to be heard in that environment. Verse 12, so he said, I will certainly be with you. That's the only way any of this happens is if the Lord is with a man like Moses or you or me. It's the only way that we're effective. It's the only way I stand here and do what I'm doing every single week is if the Lord is with me. If the Lord is not with me, then this ends a long time ago. This doesn't carry on. It comes to an end. Let Christ minister through you. I will certainly be with you. And this shall be a sign to you. Now, before I read the, the rest of that, if you're familiar with the story and, and you're thinking like, right, the, the staff turns into a snake and the leprosy and the, the stuff. No. No. That's not the sign for Moses. There are signs for the unbelieving world. There are signs for those that need to follow Moses. But the thing that needs to be in place for Moses, read this. This shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Think about, think about the great distance that has to be covered, right? All ten of the plagues are going to take place. The entire Egyptian army is going to be, I hope I'm not spoiling the story for you. <clears throat> the entire Egyptian army is going to be drowned in the Red Sea. Right? The miraculous work of the Lord there at Passover, just tremendous things are going to take place. What's the one thing that's going to stand out is, is the completion of the freedom. They're still going to wander in the desert for 40 years and make it into Canaan, but literally when you're all the way out, and you're up here on this mountain again, and we meet face to face, and I give you the law, I give you the Ten Commandments. That'll be the sign to you. Has God promised you certain things? <clears throat> and they've kind of faded from your heart? 
mostly through discouragement. <laughs> Time has passed and they haven't been fulfilled. Hold on. Hold on and trust the Lord. Wait upon Him. If you know for certain that He's promised them to you, hang on to what the Lord has said. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of our fathers has sent me to you. And they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? So this issue of what is God's name, it's still an issue today. Is it Jesus? Is it Jehovah? Is it Yahweh? Yeah. Exactly. Read. God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now, at first, it just seems big and mystical. You know, I mean, am I supposed to get some kind of depth out of that? You know, God is the I am. If you take it for literally what it means, that he's whatever you need. And you really start to examine that in your life and then test him in it. You're allowed to do that. You're encouraged to do that. What is the issue you're dealing with? Loneliness? He is the answer to that. Depression? He is the answer to that. Anxiety? He is the answer to that. Financial crisis? He is the answer to that. Christianity has come to the place where it preaches God's insufficiency. Christianity preaches God's insufficiency. How tragic is that? When what he is saying is, I am whatever you need. Now, the book of James tells us that there are certain things we will ask for that God will not give us because we ask them out of lust some sinful desire and god says you're not getting that because you're going to ruin yourself with it right that's why i never win the lottery that and i don't play it so <laughs> can't win if you don't play but i could win even though i don't play right if god wanted me to have the winning ticket he could arrange that too couldn't he he could send it to me i could find it God could do whatever he wants to do. He knows that what I need is just enough. Like the psalmist said, don't give me so little <clears throat> that I would be compelled to steal and defame your name. Don't give me so much that out of my abundance, I have no need for you and forget you. He hovers me right in that place of constant dependence. Day to day, week to week, relying upon the Lord. God knows what we need. More than I do. More than I do. More than you do. When he says, I am, you really got to go home. More than anything out of this today, you've got to go home and dwell on that. What is your issue? What's your thing? What is going on in your life? God is that answer. He is the one. In John chapter 8, at verse 56, I'm going to read you a few verses. John 8, verse 56. There, Jesus speaking said, 
Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. When the Jews said to him, You're not 50 years old. Have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Before Abraham was, I am. Jesus claimed to be God. If you don't think that's what he meant, John chapter 8, verse 59 says, Then they took up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. They, they totally took that as him saying he was God. Before Abraham was, I am. How about this passage in John chapter 10, beginning at verse 32. Jesus answered that many good works I have shown you from my father. For which of those works do you stone me? Verse 33, the Jews answered him saying, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you being a man, make yourself God. If you're confused about it, Jesus is God. Plain and simple. God became a man, according to John chapter 1, verse 14, and he dwelt amongst us. And he allowed us in our sinful state to put him to death so that he could rise from the dead and prove to us not only did he have power over death, but he has power over sin, which produces death. That was his whole point in coming, was to deliver us from the sin we had introduced to all of creation. Praise God. His deliverance, the same as Moses' deliverance here, the very symbol of sin, the Egyptian slavery. This is a message of deliverance. And it's a message of messengers sent to deliver. Be his messenger. Deliver the souls around you. Now I'm going to read the rest of this chapter like some insurance disclaimer. Ready? No, I'm, I'll do it quickly. Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to me, saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. I have said I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, to a land flowing with milk and honey. Then you will heed, then they will heed your voice, and you shall come, and you and the elders of Israel, to the king of Egypt, and you shall say to him, The Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us. And now please, let us go three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go, not even by a mighty hand. So 
I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in its midst. And after that, he will let you go. I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall be when you go that you shall not go empty-handed, but every woman shall ask of her neighbor, namely of her who dwells near her house, articles of silver, articles of gold and clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Quite a promise from the Lord. Amazingly fulfilled in just a fairly short period of time. God brings them into freedom. Now, remember a couple of things about this. The first of which is God simply wanted them to have the freedom to worship him. I want the Egyptians to let my people go three days into the wilderness to worship. God wasn't lying. That was his full request. Just give us that period of time that my people could gather to me and worship. It was the refusal to cooperate with that in obedience that God killed the Egyptian army and then completely delivered them the way that he did. Now, lastly, you have this great statement back in verse 14 about I am. I'm everything this nation needs. I'm everything the people of Israel need. Go and tell them I am. Then you get to the end of this and you read about the gleaning of the Egyptians, the plunder of the Egyptians as it's recorded here. So if you think for just a moment, what was the very first thing that the nation of Israel did with the plunder of the Egyptians? They created a golden calf. They broke off the earrings and they molded an idol for themselves. Today, there's a movement inside Christianity that refers to, I'm not trying to be offensive to anyone, but follow this. There's a movement inside Christianity that refers to psychology, worldly psychology, as the gift that Christianity has taken from the world. The plunder, they literally refer to it as the plunder of the Egyptians. Psychology. Christian psychology. Listen. The major theme of psychology today is self-esteem. More than anything, you see a psychologist today, that's what they're going to talk about. What's wrong with your self-esteem? Why do you have low self-esteem? You know what my problem with self-esteem is? I love me. <laughs> Way more than any of you. That's our whole problem. Our whole problem is self-esteem. It's not the answer. Psychology says that's your problem. You need to love yourself more. <laughs> Ask the people around me if I need to love me anymore. They're all going to tell you wholeheartedly, that dude needs to love himself less. No? No? How do you like your coffee? Really? No, no, no. I mean, how do you love your coffee? Because you can tell me what temperature it should be. 
what flavor it should be, what should be in it. You probably got it right down to the grains of sugar if you take sugar in it. You know how to make your coffee perfect. Do you know how to make everybody else's coffee in this room perfect? No? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, which will cause you to love your neighbors as yourself. We're obsessed with self. We're all hung up on self. That's my problem. right? This is why psychologists will say, the problem in your marriage is you need to go have an affair. What? That's not what my wife says. They're literally teaching this garbage. Listen, I don't need to go a long ways down the road, right? There are useful things that Israel receives from the Egyptians. The problem is they take that wealth and they create an idol. They replace God, the I am, with an idol, with what they've taken from the Egyptians. There are good things in psychology. Don't replace God with it. God is our answer. He's what we need. We don't need all of the things that these ungodly people are, you know, arrive in conclusion to. You know who has, amongst all of the professional community, you know who has the highest suicide rate? Psychologists. For real. You know who has the highest adultery rate? Psychologists. You know who has the highest drug addiction rate? Psychologists. Biggest reason there is they can write themselves scripts. Every single vice that affects humanity, they have the highest concentration of it. They don't have the answers. God is the answer. They have, listen, psychology has done a wonderful study of humanity, and they've come to great conclusions, right? In other areas, it's completely heinous. You know, in the areas of sexuality, like we watched this morning, most of that comes from Alfred Kinsey, who was a pervert and a child molester. Died of his sexual perversion. How about that? Our culture is permeated with horrible things. You'd be much better off, right? I do this as an illustration. I know we're late. We watched the video and then I talked endlessly on that. So I promise I'll be done by 3.30. I'll, I'll try to end with this. This is my first of five closings. So um, you can imagine it this way. I, I do it in illustration. I draw a big circle, right? And in it, I write God. And then I take another circle and I draw a much smaller circle that a whole bunch of it's outside the big circle and a little bit of it overlaps. And I write psychology. And that's how it works. There's a bunch of wisdom inside God that overlaps psychology. Sure. Great. There's a whole bunch of psychology that has nothing to do with God. It's incredibly sinful and destructive. You could 
totally reject psychology, completely embrace God and get everything that you need. Get everything that you need. And all of your friends that are into psychology say, yeah, but look right here, it overlaps and it's similar and all of this. Yeah, who cares? I'm going to just stay in the bigger picture. God. And let him provide what I need. Let him, let him carry me to my fulfillment, to the mountain of worship where all that he has promised is fulfilled in my life. Does that make sense? Or I just, I rambled. Well, I rambled. So, okay. Let's stand and we'll pray. Father God, you are so good to us. I thank you for the patience of my brothers and sisters. Pray that this message would minister to them. That your truth, your heart, would be what they heard. To whatever degree the foolishness of preaching did not accomplish what you wanted to this morning. I apologize, Lord, and ask that you would lend clarity to each of our hearts. That we would hear from you that you would perform and do the things each of us needs in our hearts, our minds, our lives today. Bless us, keep us, watch over us until we're together again. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.